0: I'm wondering if we have any grammar snobs in the room this morning. Okay, there's some honesty. And if you're wondering if you're on the edge, here's a quick litmus test. If the most used punctuation mark on your smartphone is an asterisk because you feel it vitally important to correct every misspelled there, there, or there two, two, or two, your or your, it's or it's, in texting conversations with your friends, that is, if you still have any at this point, because that's pretty obnoxious, then you are not just a grammar snob, but you are a grade A grammar snob. So who who are you? Can you identify yourself? Oh man, oh man, oh, I, I wish there was a confession in this worship service, sorry about that. You're going to love this activity we're about to do, Grammar Snobs. This is just for you, but I want everybody to participate. I need you to open up page four of your bulletins. Look right at our scripture reading. <clears throat> Second paragraph, first word is what? Many. Uh, you'll be interested to know that many in this sentence is functioning as a pronoun. And my question to you, Grammar Snobs and all, what is the antecedent of many? What is the antecedent of many? And if you don't speak geek, it's good to know that there's a couple of people with lives in the room. Uh, if you don't speak geek, the question is, who are the many that are telling poor old blind Bartimaeus to sit down and shut up? Who are they? The crowd. And the disciples. And the disciples. Does everybody agree? People. People. Any other answers where we feel confident? Okay, so today's story is actually different than every other story that we have read hitherto in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Because up until now, the Gospel writer Mark has made a crystal clear distinction in every story that we have read between Jesus and the disciples on the one hand, and on the other hand, those crowds that, that are constantly pressing in on them. In every story up until now, there has been a crystal clear distinction made. But in this morning's reading, we're told that Jesus and the disciples and this spectacular crowd, this substantial crowd, were all leaving Jericho together. So for the very first time in Mark, the crowd is not pressing in on Jesus and the disciples. They're not hindering their ministry. They're not causing Jesus and the disciples to have to hop in a boat so that they don't get trampled to death. But for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark, they are moving together as a single, cohesive unit. And so what that means is that as the as this as large assemblage of people are leaving Jericho and they pass by the, this blind beggar named Marta, Bartimaeus, who's making a ruckus, he's shouting out, Son of David, Jesus, take pity on me. Son of David, Jesus, take pity on me. As they pass by this beggar who is causing a scene, and many tell this man to hush up, that many includes both the disciples who have been following Jesus for two, almost three years at this point, and quite frankly, should have known better, and also... This many includes members of that that spectacularly large crowd who met Jesus just a couple days ago uh, when he began preaching and teaching in Jericho. So in this scene we have followers old and followers new and both tell Bartimaeus to hush up. And both followers old and followers new were wrong to do so. And that's just a little bit wrong, but really, truly, wildly, tragically, and I think it's fair to say foolishly wrong to tell this man to be quiet. Because here is Jesus, right? The guy that they're supposedly following, who has never met a blind person, a lame person, a diseased person, a demon possessed person. Uh, that he did not delight to stop and heal, if not travel across a a sea and heal. And yet, for some reason, for whatever reason, maybe they're just caught up in the moment, maybe they're excited to be on the road again, making music with their friends, but for whatever reason, uh, they decide that, that they want to deny Bartimaeus this healing Uh, that was so much a a centerpiece and a signature of Jesus' earthly ministry. And they were absolutely wrong to do so. And that is by no means a profound observation, uh, but 2,000 years later, reading the story that is plain for us to see in the text. Now, interestingly, the only person within the story who was able to see that the followers of Jesus are, are, are messing this situation up, that they're going astray, and wildly so. The only person who is able to see this is not only blind, but he himself is not actually yet a follower of Jesus. So Bartimaeus, is just, he's just a beggar sitting on the outskirts of town in his usual spot, Panhandling for money, so that he can buy—I don't know—what do they eat? Uh, what do they eat? Bread. bread. Get some bread. So they get some bread for dinner. He had never before heard Jesus preach firsthand. He was blind. He obviously had never seen Jesus perform any of these miraculous healings, uh, but he obviously had heard about Jesus. Heard that Jesus had these amazing healing abilities. And more importantly than that, he heard that Jesus was a rabbi who, above all else, above all else, above laws, above social customs, uh, above what was perceived to be just good common sense, Jesus was a rabbi who was all about mercy, all about mercy. And knowing just that, knowing just that about Jesus, he was able to to see that his followers were wildly off base when they told him to be quiet. And so what did old Bartimaeus do? God bless him. When they told him to be quiet, he shouted all the louder. That's a great turn of phrase, all the louder. So what that means is that every person who told him to be quiet his decibels went up that much more. So every, with every person who says something, his decibels got a little bit louder, a little bit louder, and a little bit louder until he was screaming at the top of his lungs, Son of David, take pity on me. And I think the more familiar translation of that is, Son of David, have mercy on me. And that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, Jesus yelled, Red light! And everybody in the street just stopped, they froze, went no further. Jesus had Bartimaeus brought before him and restored his sight. Why? Because Jesus is a rabbi who, above all else, is about mercy. And in this moment, in the story of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' own followers have lost sight of that fact. And that, this story, friends, this story is why we as a church, is why we as Christians, why we as followers of Jesus, cannot, cannot, cannot have anything but love and respect for people who are outside the church, for people who are outside of Christianity, for people of different faiths, and for people of no faith at all. Because just to summarize what happened in the story, Jesus is traveling around with what amounts to be a church community, right? He has followers who have been following him for years. I'm not going to point you out, but some of you are older than others in this room and have been going to church for longer. Uh, and he's traveling with people who are brand new to the faith. Just think two weeks ago, right? We baptized Micah Defini, brand new member of the church. Jesus is walking around with a church community. And not only that, this is a, a church community that has the luxury of literally walking beside Jesus, learning directly from him, witnessing his miracles, receiving his ministering in the flesh. And with all that, with all that great proximity they had to Jesus, still this community managed to get it wrong. And it took someone outside that community to help them see that they were not following as they were being led, if that makes sense. They were not following as they were being led. Sometimes it takes someone on the outside to help us see what's wrong on the inside. Amen? And that's not just something that, that's not one of those teachings that that I take lightly. I think we all have a a hierarchy of beliefs, and there's some beliefs that we, we hold fairly lightly, and if we think about and rationalize, we can say, oh yeah, yeah, I guess I believe that. Uh, But then all of us, I think we have about two or three beliefs that we just know to be true in our guts, right? We all have like two or three beliefs that we actually live our lives by. And that's about it, honestly. It doesn't get much more than that. And for me, this is one of those teachings. This is one of those biblical truths uh, that I just know in my gut. And let me tell you why. Uh, So some of you know this, uh, not all of you know this, I actually grew up in what was a fundamentalist and literalist, biblically literalist church. Uh, If you haven't caught on yet, this is not one of those churches. Surprise! Surprise! Uh, And so I grew up with with very conservative theology and I held tight to those beliefs uh, well into my college years, until I was a junior in college, in fact. Uh, and like so many juniors in college, I, I did a semester abroad, uh, and I went to the land of the rising sun, went over to Japan, uh, and the way, the way my time over there worked out was I, I spent uh, May through July, May, June, July, at an a intensive language school, uh, which was really good because I got off the plane being able to say, the dog is big, uh, and that was about it. It's not very useful in day-to-day conversation. Uh, and then uh, in September, I was going to enter into a Japanese university just for, for a semester. Uh, but between those two stints, I, I had that month, about five weeks, uh, where I had nothing to do. So I got a grant from my university uh, to do a little research project. I don't know how I came up with this. don't know why I came up with this. Uh, but I decided to study language use at a Buddhist temple in Japan. So I found a a temple outside of Kyoto that would let visitors come in uh, and stay for a while. And I went and I stayed. And when you stay there, you have to do what all the monks do. So at 4 o'clock every morning, I I woke up to the sound of a gong. uh, And then you wake up and you do an hour of manual labor. So I would do things, and this is going to sound like a very Buddhist thing, but I would pluck blades of grass out of gravel. Uh, they would also have you like clean bathrooms and stuff, but that was the most Buddhist uh, of the experiences of manual labor. After the manual labor, you would get breakfast, which of course was rice gruel and pickled radishes. Uh, I lost a lot of weight while I was there, I'll tell you what. Uh, and then every day, three times a day, uh, we would chant and we would meditate as a full community. But about two weeks uh, into this day, I was in the middle of a meditation meditation, uh, and I had this realization. I said, here I am, a, a good, wholesome, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Christian boy. And here I am, living as a Buddhist. If this doesn't have hellfire and damnation written all over it, over it I don't know what does. So I literally that day I left, and I went and I stayed at a hostel. But this was my first time abroad. My parents were super scared. They didn't want me to be alone. Uh, and at my language school, I had stayed with a, a homestay family. So my mom said, you know, if you can be in contact with them, tell them no matter what they want us to pay, we will pay them uh, to let you stay with them for these next few weeks. So I, I called them up and I, I tried as best I could to, to explain the situation. Uh, what you need to know about Japan, it's only 2% Christian. Uh, they have no idea anything about basic tenets of Christian doctrine. They know nothing about Christianity whatsoever. Uh, so I, I tried to explain my situation and why I was uncomfortable living at the temple. I don't think it really computed, uh, But without question, without question, they opened their doors and said, Sure, stay with us. And they would take no money for food. They would take no money for just letting me stay there whatsoever and for the next three weeks or so they made me a, a member of their family. I spent all day practicing calligraphy with their kids. Uh, we'd go ride out in the countryside with host moms, stay up late at night talking and drinking sake with host dad. Uh, it was a really good time. But then about two weeks into that stay I had another epiphany. Uh, I realized that the, this devout Buddhist family uh, was waking up every morning, kneeling in front of their Buddhist altar, and saying Buddhist prayers. And yet, and yet, was not this love that I was receiving from these people, this hospitality that I was receiving from these people, this mercy that I was receiving from these people, was this not the self same love that I had read about in the scripture? all these years? Isn't that the love that is embodied by Christ and talked about by Christ and espoused by Christ in the Gospels? Is that not the self-same love? And I got to a point where, where I said, huh, could I imagine a situation in which a foreigner of a different religion asked someone in my home church if they could stay at their house Because that foreigner had a problem with their religion. Because that was the situation. Uh, And the truth is, I, I could not. Why? Because that would never happen, not in a million years, would anybody in my home church have ever invited someone like me into their home. But it took this Buddhist family, this devout Buddhist family to teach me something about the love, the hospitality, and really about the mercy, the mercy of Christ. Sometimes, friends, it takes someone on the outside, doesn't it, to show you what you're missing, what you have wrong on the inside. And so my prayer for all of us, as we're on this journey of faith together, is that we would have open minds and open hearts that we may better follow as we are being led. In Jesus' name, amen.